Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Blazing No Glory, the podcast. Um, this is part one of Fraternising with the Enemy. So I'm joined by AP Cronje, um, Springboks fan extraordinaire, uh, South African rugby Twitter darling. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well, and you've given me a very nice intro there. I'm not sure if I'm the darling of South African rugby Twitter. Sometimes I'm very much the devil there. But, um, but yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having me on. Looking forward to it. Good, good. And... Um, First and foremost, before we get into like the, the Rugby World Cup, and obviously Scotland and South Africa are in the same group with Ireland, somehow the top five teams in the world at one point. Um how did you how did you get into uh, rugby? What what made you fall in love with the game? Oh, I mean that's a that's a brilliant question. I guess uh, growing up in a rugby household, my dad was a uh, you know a big big rugby supporter, my mum as well. Um, so I think uh, you know as as usual, it sort of comes down from your parents a lot of the time. Um, so I was I sort of always grew up watching rugby, playing rugby when I was so I was schooled actually in England. I live in England, um, but I've been playing rugby since I was six. I've done sort of most things in the game, done a bit of coaching, done a bit of refereeing. Um, so yeah, I think that over time. You know, you, your your interest just gets <clears throat> deeper and deeper, and I think that's sort of what led me eventually to go into sort of the journalism route when uh, when I realised my playing days uh, <laughs> were were nearing their end. Um, so yeah, so I did a do sort of a bit of freelance rugby journalism from time to time as well, and, and obviously you'll you'll know that I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose the genesis of everything is 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 familial is is from from my dad. Fair enough, and I think I think that's possibly quite quite common um, across the board uh, for most people that are in rugby now. Um, uh, I, I didn't have that journey, actually. My um, my rugby days just started because I was rubbish at football at school and wanted to try something. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, um, obviously, South Africa have now got the, uh, the rugby championship coming up. Um, and there was a bit of a, a strange debate on, on Twitter um, that I sort of engaged in saying that South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, they have a bigger advantage going into the World Cup because of the Rugby Championship. Do you agree with that because the Six Nations obviously earlier or do you think that it's not really a, that big an advantage to, to those club hey, teams? Sorry. So it's a, it's a risk-reward element really because ultimately, so look, the first point to note is that it's a shortened Rugby Championship. It's only three games. Um, so whereas you had the full Six Nations tournament earlier in the year, this is very much a curtailed Rugby Championship, which is why you'll see that um, South Africa has got three warm-up games, even following the rugby championship, one against Argentina, Buenos Aires, then against Wales, and then against the All Blacks again. So clearly the you know the minds in the Springbok camp have decided that for them, optimum prepar- preparation is to have six competitive games of international rugby. Um, but ultimately, you know, you do get that risk. You know, you've got guys like Andre Pollard who are sort of perennially injured, but are crucial for us. Um, and he's out for the entirety of the rugby championship. You know, Ibn Etzebet's an incredibly important player. He's out now. Siokalisi's out for, for the time being. So all these guys should hopefully, fingers crossed, be ready for the World Cup. But, you know, you get other guys who might suffer injuries. And ultimately, if you if you suffer a serious injury now, that's your World Cup done. You know, that this is now very much last chance saloon, as it were. So there's always going to be that risk. But on the flip side, you know, there's, there's the opportunity to explore... Um, the different combinations. I expect we'll see Marnie Libok um, start for South Africa at 10 um, against Australia. I think that's the feeling. Uh, a guy who's not had, I believe, any starts at, at fly half, um, but is an important combination to look to develop before going into the World Cup. So it, it gives you an opportunity to test your squad depth, to make those final decisions as who gets into that um, 33-man squad. And I think statistically, it has been shown that teams do tend to to do better for being you know so-called battle hard and going into the competition so uh, it's it's a, it's a really tricky one to say and i i suppose you know it'll always be a post factor justification or rationalization you'll we'll see if if new zealand south africa australia do very poorly at the world cup everyone's going to you know say well you can pin pinpoint the rugby championship if you like and vice versa if they do very well they might say well they've They've had the opportunity to to really be battle hardened and sharp ahead of the competition, so it's always a tricky one to say. Um, the personal, my personal feeling is that I'm I'm pretty glad that we will have this opportunity um, to, to sort of have a proper international head out. Cool, cool. And, and do you think that there is there's a sort of balance to be struck um, in the in the world in the rugby championship with you know 
experimenting with some of the combinations you might need for the World Cup and giving some people game time versus wanting to win the, the rugby championship, which is obviously quite prestigious in itself. Is there a, some kind of balance that you see from the coaches when you have these ones just before the World Cup? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously the last time it was in 2019, the last time it was obviously before the World Cup and South Africa won that one in a curtailed competition as well. I think that, you know, disparagingly, people sometimes say, well, it doesn't really matter in a World Cup. It's a shortened competition. It doesn't have the prestige because you're sort of focusing on the on on the main main event later in the year. But obviously, um, clearly for South Africa, they did something right to win that and then go on and win the World Cup. So I suppose winning is a habit and to carry forward momentum is really important. Um, so, yeah, I think there, there will always be, you know, those that sort of naysay the rugby championship in a World Cup year and say, well, it's not really that important. And, and to an extent, that's probably true. I mean, it isn't it isn't the main focus for the coaches this year. That will, of course, be the World Cup, which is in only a few months' time. But having said that, it's it, it's, um, it does still carry some weight. And, um, yeah, particularly... You know, you, you can balance you, you know, developing your squad depth, but ultimately everybody still wants to win. And I think that we'll see that in the in the opening round this coming weekend. They'll probably be tearing into each other, going hell for leather as usual. Good. And um, for people not quite as uh, familiar with the South African squad, is there anyone sort of that's maybe a bit fresher that, that we sh- people should be looking out for come Rugby Championship World Cup time? that maybe people in Europe or on Scotland and stuff won't be quite so aware of. Yeah, I think um, I think two guys come to mind. The first guy is someone I've mentioned already is Marty Lebok. I think that if you you know if you follow the URC, you'll sort of be more you know aware of him as obviously the, the Stormers starting ten. Um, he is very much had a fledgling Springbok career at the moment. He went in the end of year tour, played a bit against Italy, um, and I believe actually made his debut against France. But he. He is sort of an out-and-out fly-half and and is the only one who's fit in the squad at the moment. So for the rugby championship squad, Andre Pollard's unlikely to play any games. So the two people that we have at fly-half, or sorry, there's someone's been brought in, but the two people who are likely to go to the World Cup if Pollard is fit are Marnie Lebouk and Damien Willemser. Now, Willemser is more of a... Uh, I hate to use the term utility player, but he, he doesn't strike me as a natural fly half. He sort of plays full back, plays fly half, plays inside center. He's a very versatile player in that regard, a bit like Francis Stein, actually. Um, and then you have Marnie Lebourg. So there's a lot resting on his shoulders during the rugby championship in terms of the South African coaches will hopefully expect him to take the step up to test level. Um, and I think he's sort of the darling of South African rugby, but he's also a, a polarizing figure. I mean, his detractors will say that he doesn't have the temperament, um, you know, when when the big moments come, he, he, he doesn't perform. And they'll cite the rugby champ, uh, the, sorry, the USC final as an example of that, where he had a pretty, pretty poor game. Um, but, you know, the, his his sponsors will say, no, actually, you know, the previous year, he was instrumental in guiding them to winning the, the USC. And he was very good throughout the knockouts, barring the, the final. Um, I fall into the into the latter camp. I actually do think that he'll he'll take the step up, and I think that he's a key player for South Africa going forward because of the transition. I think they're going to, we're going to see in the coming World Cup in the in the style of play. I think that there were some visions of it in the um, end of year tour last year. I think that the Springboks are sort of moving towards developing their play. I think that they've they've done it two years later than the rest of the world has because COVID basically stopped all rugby in South Africa for basically a year and a half and then they had the Lions series and so they went into a hyper-conservative win-at-all-costs style of play you know the, the very boring kick-chase style that we've we've become accustomed to because you know that was their strength so they doubled down on it but I think we've seen hints about them varying that play and I think Marnie Lebog at 10 is going to be pretty instrumental so I'm quite excited to see how he goes um, in the rugby championship and the other guy, very briefly, is um, is Kanan Moody. He made his debut last year in the Rugby Championship. He's Bulls winger. Um, I believe he's only 20, 20 or 21 years old. Very young guy. Massive, massive international future. He's, um, I believe, Jacques Ninaba said he's one of the most talented guys he's ever coached. Um, there's a lot of expectation on his shoulder to, to go on and do big things. It's unlikely that he'll be starting, um, you know, the big World Cup games because ultimately they've got a very settled back three in Vili LaRue, Chazan Colby and Marcus Olema-Pempe. But I expect we'll see him feature a lot in the Rugby Championship and go to the World Cup as a, as a squad member. And, you know, if there is any any injuries, he'll, he'll slot in. Um, so those are two guys who, 
perhaps Northern, uh, Northern Hemisphere rugby fans may not be as familiar with, um, particularly Kane and Moody. But yeah, they're, I think two guys are very exciting. Cool, cool. And um, you mentioned, um, obviously, that uh, South, South Africa are kind of typecast as this boring outfit. Um, actually, funnily enough, so, so are Ireland, the other team in the group at times. Um, but they do have, in my opinion, some of the most exciting back three players in, in the world. Um, uh, Cheslin Colby gets his credit a lot. I actually think Mpimpi's a better winger than him. But who do you think goes in that, that back three in the squad, you've got obviously Aranzi as well as uh, Moody and, and Willie Larue. Uh, so, I mean, what's your what would be your ideal back three for for uh, South Africa? So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good it's a really good question. I think that Willie Larue is pretty crucial, not just because of you know his flaw, his his skills at fullback, but ultimately what he brings to the to the box on attack. He he basically runs the attacking show. It's kind of a weird weird sort of system in the box where nine and 15 are running the attack. I mean, Pollard is a, is a very good player and has many strengths, but it's always been Billy LaRue who gives, he sort of dictates how the attack flows and, and he makes the big calls at the big moments. So he's pretty crucial in that respect. Um, so I expect he'll stay as, as the starting fullback. And then obviously you've got Chesney Colby and Marcus Zellimapimpi. And I agree with you, actually. I think that Marcus Zellimapimpi is sometimes a bit of an underrated player. Even within South Africa, he has, he has a surprising number of detractors. Um, and I think that, as you say, on his pure skills as a winger, I actually do think that he's better than Colby. Um, but obviously, Colby brings that game-breaking element and, you know, is just has the ability to produce moments of, of, of brilliance um, that few other players can. And then I think to round it out, the, the guys that will go to the World Cup are the two guys, that, well, one guy I mentioned, one that you just mentioned, Kirtley Arendt, I believe, will go. And I believe uh, Kane and Moody will go as well. And then... You also have a guy like Damien Willems who very happily covers 15 if he needs to. So within those five, six guys, I suspect that's the the outside backs that we'll see go to the World Cup. Those three regular starters plus Kane and Moody who can potentially slot in at 13 as well. Kirtley Aronser who covers both wings and 15. And then Damien Willemser who, again, has covered 15, has played on the wing when there's been injuries. Um, so I, th- I think the Springboard coaches like the versatility that that playing group brings. And their ability to sort of move up, move around in that back three. So I think that justifies having that number. Okay, and um, you mentioned earlier, obviously in the, in the ten position, you've got you've got Lippock and um, Pollard. Presumably, when fit, will come into come into the squad. Um, is is am I right in thinking that Pollard's played a little bit of twelve? Would you would you maybe see him moving there if Lippock does well in the ten jersey? To, to to open up both of them playing a, a, akin to Farrell and Ford for England, see? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a question that we've sort of toyed with for a long time as South African supporters, particularly, I mean, Elton Yankees is now back in the squad. He's been called up through, through the injury of Pollard. So, um, But when when Yankees and Pollard were both the sort of the two Springbok fly halves, as it were, which is, you know, from about 2017 onwards, what's been the case until now, there's been Damien Willems' emergence and Manny Lebok. But there was always the question of whether we'd have an actual game started with Yankees at 10 and Pollard at 12, because we saw glimpses of it in the rugby championship, I want to say two years ago, there were moments where Pollard moved to 12 and Yankees was at 10, because Yankees has always been more of an attacking player, sort of brings the ball to the line, is, is, has very good vision. Um, and in that same way, Marnie Lebok is a player like that as well, is, is instinctively attack-minded, instinctively wants to look to put players away. And obviously we know that Pollard has the, you know, he has the guts and the gumption to play at 12. He's a, he's a big guy, he's physical, he's everything that, you know, you'd, you'd expect in a typical South African 12. Um, so there's that element of it. I believe there were some rumours in the press that we might see Damien Willems at 10 with Pollard at 12. So I think it's potential that they're going to look to explore that sort of dual playmaker Role it might be something that we see experimented with in the um, in the warm up games, perhaps against Wales or against Argentina. Um, so again, it's something something that you know I think that we've not really seen um, from South Africa. It's something that a lot of people, myself included, have wanted to at least see given a go. Um, so perhaps it's a bit late now to for them to to sort of do do something like that. But you know, looking forward to the next rotation, it might well be that we have something like Marnie Lebok at ten and and Damien Willems at twelve, where you again you've got that sort of dual playmaker role. Cool. Well and in terms of your your centers at the moment, um I mean 
ordinarily, uh, I think Am is a is the thirteen jerseys has but for injuries or 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 whatever. I see here that they've also selected Dale Andy, who's normally at twelve. Um, Andre Esterhaven now. Andre Esterhaven. Sorry, that was terrible pronunciation. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of him for Quinns. Talk, tell us a bit about him. Yeah, I mean he's he's six foot four, hundred and twelve, one hundred and ten kg, big guy. You know, <laughs> so he's. He's your quintessential crash ball 12, you know, gets you good meters over the advantage line. But I think that that's sort of how he was used when he was in South Africa at the Sharks. Um, but since he's moved to Quinns, just by virtue of being in a team that is, you know, prides their their skills in terms of moving the ball, he's developed, you know, pretty massively as a player. I think his distribution game is something that's really grossly underrated the amount of times you'll see him for Quinn's look like he's going to hit a short line, but then pull it out the back for Marcus Smith or pull it wide. It's sort of it, his, his size sort of belies actually how deft his handling is. And then his work on the ground is actually another really underrated element of his game. There was a period of time, I believe last year that he went on to win like four man of the matches in the space of about five games where he was making crucial turnovers at the last moment and, you know, really, really good on, on the deck. So he's a, he's a very versatile physical obviously player um, and I suspect we'll get to see him start against Australia this weekend coming um, I think the feeling is that Am is going to be at 13 with Estes and at 12 um, and I'm, I mean I'm happy for him because he sort of sat behind Damien Delinda who is the you know the primary South African inside centre um, and there's been a few occasions where they've looked to play both Delinda and Estes and but to sort of not it's not been that successful both of them are pretty much you know your classic inside centers they you know they probably don't quite have the pace to to defend the 13 channel in the way that someone like arm or jesse krill can so um unfortunately for Fandre Estes, and again he was cited i think by alibolters and ninaba in 2019 as being one of the guys most unlucky not to not to go to the world cup um i think this time around he might he might get the nod i i hope for his sake he does because i think he's been tearing up trees for for Quinns and, and he's been one of their sort of crucial, crucial players. Cool, cool. And just to sort of finish talking about the the backs, um obviously it was Fata Clerk, um Hendrixy, uh Yantes, I apologize for my pronunciation, Renak and Williams. Um I think most people here still think Faf de Clerk's like the man, but uh for you as 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 Faf um Still that guy, or is there is there another scrum half that that's that's should be starting ahead of him? No, I think that he's very much just a man. <laughs> I think that what he brings in terms of his his sort of defensive, you know, hustling and bustling in the opposition, the fact that he's just such a for one of a better term, he's such an ass. <laughs> he <laughs> he makes life incredibly uncomfortable for the opposition. He's just in your face, he's unrelenting. Um, and then I think his actual, you know, he's so settled in the team and he knows, you know, intimately how, you know, the ins and outs of, of the team, the game plan. I think he's very much the starting the starting nine. But then below him, it, it's actually, it's interesting because it's it's sort of the door's been thrown wide open. I think you've got Grubus Reiner, who's, who's always very impressive and probably doesn't get as many starts as he, as he deserves just by virtue of the fact that, that Faf is so good. And then below them, you've got... Um, You've got Grant Williams and, and, and Herschel, Herschel Yankees. So Yankees is an interesting one because I think his form has probably dipped quite significantly in the last year or two. Um, and he is one of the few guys who I think you could say didn't have a very good autumn tour. He was given a start. I think I believe it was actually against Scotland. He was given a start um, in pretty wet, torrid conditions. You'll be unsurprised to hear. Um, and I think that he, I remember thinking that he just didn't have a very good outing. And so I think that he's there on more on the basis that, you know, he's historically been part of the squad. And this is, I'm talking about the rugby championship squad, but I suspect that, how he performs in this tournament will be crucial in determining whether it's him or Grant Williams who, who goes to the World Cup. Because in Grant Williams, you have a guy who's been in absolutely phenomenal form. You know, he's he's possibly possibly the quickest scrum off in South Africa, and that includes Grobus Reinach. I mean, you need only look at the, some of the tries he scored against um, against Toulouse in the in the Champions Cup, where he basically. He just cut them open. Um, so he, he's he's an unbelievably talented guy, and he's exactly the type of guy you want to bring on if you want to accelerate the game. Um, so again, it, it sort of it depends on what style of play South Africa want to play. If you want to go 
quickly and you know i suspect against some teams um that might be the the go-to then you're looking at someone like Reinach and, and and Williams, but if you want a more controlled game, you're looking at someone like Jaden Hendricks, uh, de Clark, Herschel Yankees potentially. Um, but yeah, it's an area of, of Springbok rugby that there's been a lot of um, competition at the moment. Fuff will go, Reinach will go, Jaden Hendricks, uh, Herschel Yankees, or um, Grant Williams. One of those three, you know, will will go. So it's sort of over to them to see to see who really nails down the spot. Cool, cool, and then. Um... You've got. I, I, I do. I do like this South Africa. The way they've put their squad. They've got props, hookers, locks, loose forwards, utility forwards, which are obviously people that jump between the two. So it's quite nice. They're not. They're not boxed in. And um, someone who caught me uh, watching URC and um, I think it was particularly an Edinburgh game was uh, Evan Ruse. Do you think he's got a good chance to get on that plane to to France? I think he's got his, yeah as good a chance as anybody in the forwards. Really, I think that there's he's been sort of cited as the the up and coming future Springbok eighth man. Um, you know, because Dwayne Vermeulen, as as we know, is is now a veteran, and this will it almost in all certainty be his his final his final swan song. So he he will almost certainly step step away after the World Cup. You've then got Jasper Visa, who's the current sort of incumbent starter. But then Evan Ruiz is the guy that everyone is incredibly excited about. And um, I think he had his breakthrough season last season in the URC. It was just monumental. You know, was making meetings for fun, was just was aggressive, good on the ground. And I think that the the elements of his game that were probably keeping him out of the Springbok team, which were the fact that he wasn't really a line-out option, uh, sometimes his mall defence was a bit shaky, didn't offer as much on the ground. Those are all elements of his game that has been quite noticeable that he's worked on this season. Um, he's now much more of a line-out option for the Stormers. You know, he's he's very good on the ground. So I, I think that it's exactly because he's gone away and worked on those elements of his game that he's now there. I think in, in South Africa, it's always sort of been between him and um, another guy called Aurich Lowe, uh, sorry, Aurich Lowe, who plays for the Bulls. There's, you know, those two are sort of seen as the two big up-and-coming guys who are probably looking to eventually replace Dwayne Vermeulen and Peter Steff to Dwayne respectively. And yeah, it's it's just a case that Ruiz has just picked Arichlo into the squad and, and you can't really you can't really blame blame the coaches. He's he's really been fantastic. And in terms of uh, your, your sort of back three makeup for, for South Africa, I mean I've seen I think um Mostert's started there as well um a few times. It's they're all the back row for me is always terrifying for South Africa. But who who would you have as your you know, absolute top back three for, for eh, not back three, back row for South Africa. So if a World Cup final was tomorrow and everyone was fit, you'd have Sierra Lisi, Peter Stefetoe, and probably, oh, it's a really tricky one at eight one actually, because, you know, instinctively you want to say Dwayne Vermeulen because he's he's always been there. Um, and what he offers around the park, you know, he's brilliant in the air. They usually drop him back for kick receipt. He's fantastic. He's a line-out jumping option. You know, he's marshals them all really well. He's incredibly important on defense. So for all his experience, he probably gets the start. But ultimately, you look at a guy like Jasper Avisa, and it's really tricky to exclude him because he's just such a go-forward option. And he's basically a batching round for the for the, for the Springboks. And he's exactly the type of guy who just carries, carries, carries and defends all day. He's a momentum stopper and a momentum giver, if that makes sense. Um, so again, I think it will depend on who you're who you're facing, whether you'll need someone with a bit more attritional or whether you'll need someone who has that sort of wider skill set and experience. Um, but yeah, all, all things considered, it's probably the same back three as you saw you saw throughout the World Cup in 2019 and have seen since. It's Sia Kalisi, Dwayne Familian and Peter Stefft is is probably the starting back three. Yeah, and, and, and just on the point of VC uh, he's he's got a bit of a reputation. Um for being ill-disciplined and, and things like that. Do you think that's a bit unfair or is that quite accurate? No, I think it was accurate. I think it was accurate, not because I think that he's necessarily someone who's, um, you know, deliberately uh, like a, a dirty player. I don't get the impression he's someone like Lavanini who sort of is, is constantly on the wrong side of things. I think particularly when he started in the premiership, I think by virtue of the fact that he is so abrasive physically, I think he just got his timings wrong a lot of the time. We saw lots of yellow cards given for flying into rucks and, and, and that type of thing. And ultimately that's, that's technique. And I mean, the same could be said of Andreas days in his first season as well. And someone like Jean-Luc Dupree is also in the squad now at the moment where 
I think a lot of the time, you know, it's it's adjusting to the interpretations and in, you know in, in the northern hemisphere once you've come out of Super Rugby, which can be a bit of a free fall at times. Um, so adjusting to those interpretations, adjusting to the fact that we have seen a move in the last sort of three, four years towards, you know, looking at player safety in a way which we haven't done before, which is obviously a very positive thing. And you'll know I'm a big proponent of. So I think that there's an adjustment period for certain players. And I think that some get it quicker than others. And I think that someone like Bisa did take probably a year, year and a bit for him to really, really get there. Um so I think, yeah, it's tricky. You're always going to carry that type of reputation. And it's also one of those things that comes with playing the type of game you do, right? If you are a abrasive, physical, aggressive guy, you know, you're always going to be on the edge and people are always going to sort of look at you and what you're doing and think, well, there's elements of illegality there. So um, it's not unfair to, to say that he's been, he's had his issues with discipline. I don't think it's malicious, as I say. I think it's, it's more just technique issues usually, um, but it's something that I think he he is aware of and the box will be aware of. I think that the the discipline for South Africa over the last, well, the World Cup, last World Cup was very, very good overall. Um, over the last sort of year or two, I think they've struggled in parts. And I think there's been a big emphasis on them getting um, sort of good clarity in, in their training from referees. I know they tried to rope in Nigel Owens to play that role, to basically be a, an almost a go-between and to, to give them pointers in their training to make sure that they're pretty spot on and how they you know, how they coach the ruck and how they coach the wall, et cetera, et cetera. And they've now had Yaku Paper working with the team as well. And I think it's a trend we're seeing in rugby that's probably going to go forward. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you see in France do the same thing where they've had former international referees working with their, with their international side because those guys just give you an insight into, you know, how certain elements of the game are being refereed. Cool, cool. And um, front, front row, uh it's always a weird one for me with South Africa because they, they don't seem to have just one starting front row. They seem to always have two. Um, is, is is that like something that's likely to continue in the, in the World Cup where you're going to have the, 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 the bomb squad, as it's called? Or do you, do you think there'll be more of a kind of traditional, you know, 60-20 minute split? Or, or will it still be that we could get to halftime, 39 minutes, I think they've done it with Scotland, and they changed the whole front row um, when Scotland were ahead, then never <laughs> Um, what do you, how do you think they're going to play the front row and who, who do you see as being the most important guys in, your, in the South African front row? So it's an interesting one, but I think actually almost counterintuitively, the bomb squad is prefaced upon being able to select two locks, not so much on the front row. So if you look at the World Cup in 2019, um, the reason they could go with that 6-2 split is because they had Alkis Neymon on the bench and Franco Mostert on the bench. So... Snaimon meant that you could bring off Etzebet and lose no power. And Mostert meant that you covered both Luat Diaga at five or if something went wrong, Peter Stifted Toy at seven. So that was sort of the genesis of, of having that, which meant that you can then have a guy like Walker Smith as well on the bench and you have those six forwards. So we've struggled really to be able to do a, a proper so-called bomb squad since then because we've not really had a replacement for lock, you know, tight head lock. Now, uh, just by virtue, thank you, Munster, we've we've now got two back in John Klein and Alkis Neymon, which then opens the door again, I believe, to doing a proper bomb squad. And now, sort of turning to your question in terms of the front row, yeah, I do think that's the plan. I think that you're going to see the the two sort of front rows utilised in, in probably in a similar way as they were. You don't have a, a starting South African front row in, in, in a conventional sense, you know. It, because I think that they are so used to playing certain combinations. So I think that you'll see Ox and Che, Bongi and um, and possibly Vincent Koch, they play very well as a, as a combination, whereas you've got Stephen Kitzel, Francois Malaraba and Malcolm Marks, they play very well as a combination. So I think that Selak have a lot of strength and depth in the front row and, and how they how they manage those workloads is going to be interesting, but I expect that we will see something that we you know, that we've seen since, since, you know, 2017, which is that, um, yeah, that sort of hooking everyone at sort of 50 minutes, 45 minutes and giving the next guys on a, pro a proper crack at it. Yeah. And, and does it upset South Africans that their best tight head prop is uh, played for Scotland? <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of love. I, I take it. You mean VPNL, right? Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of love for him and for Skumis. Um, I think that, Whenever South Africans go abroad, I think most most of the time people are very, very happy for them if they go on and be successful. And I can tell you that um, I don't think it was this 
Six Nations when you when you beat England, although I was very much out of my feet for that as well. But I believe it was the last one where I think VPNL came on and won a pretty crucial penalty very late in the game. Um, and yeah, it was it was just absolute pandemonium in my household for sure. So I think uh, yeah, obviously obviously frustrating that he's uh, he's not he's not in South Africa. He's a free state boy, but um, but no, I mean he's had an amazing career for Scotland. He just never seems to he just never seems to stop. I think that it was after. After the Calcutta Cup, I think he he tweeted something it was just you know like we're we're only getting started. I was like I think you're like forty five years old, mate. What do you mean you're only getting started? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. um, but yeah, yeah, he's such a big personality as well. But he's yeah, he's great. Cool, cool. And looking at the uh, the World Cup, um, I would imagine South Africa and Ireland are well, South Africa and Ireland are the, are the favourites to go with that group. Is is there is there any small part of, of of you or or the people you other South African fans you know that that are a little bit worried about about getting out of the group in the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can be in that group and not have it in your mind that ultimately you've got three of the top five teams in the world, you know, in in the same group, and only two go through. So I think that you'd be you'd be mad not to not to worry about that. I mean, you can't just write off any team. And you know, we we talk a lot about the three teams of you know Scotland, the, the tier one teams, as it were, of Scotland, Ireland, and, and and South Africa. But ultimately, you've got some pretty big hitters outside of that as well you know um so i don't think it's going to be an easy group at all i think that from a south african perspective i'm quite i'm quite glad that we're playing um scotland first up mostly because i believe that if we'd had ireland first and we'd lost that game then everything with the extra pressure i can see i can see us i can see scotland really pulling a pulling an upset i think that uh i think as it is um South Africa will, of course, fancy themselves against against Scotland. They'll fancy themselves against Ireland as well. That's the attitude you have to have if you're going to win tournaments. But um, but as a fan, it's, it makes me very, very nervous. I think that Scotland have always been one of those teams that when they play South Africa, are there or thereabouts for a while. And then towards the end of the game, we've sort of come good and and, and not run away with it. But we then we've then you know been been comfortable in, in victory. But I think that. Um, but yeah, and you know anything can happen in these World Cups, and I think that Scotland are definitely a team that have the you know they have the players uh, certainly, and we've seen that. So whether it's whether Tooney can can pull off an upset, is, it remains to be seen. Obviously, I just I hope not, but um, but but I'm sure that you you feel differently. <laughs> well, I'd like to think we beat one of the two teams in there. I mean, if if we had to take if I could pick one to go out, I'm being honest, I'd rather it was Ireland, but um, that's just because the years of Leinster. And uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah. So what what scares you the most about Scotland? I, I know that sounds a little bit um, foolhardy. Saying what scares you the most, like we're terrifying. But what what you know what part of Scotland's game gives you the most cause of, for concern? I think Scotland's wide game. I think their ability in the back line to to basically you know the, everyone knows their attacking ability. And when they start getting on the front foot, when you've got guys like you know Finn Russell and Hugh Jones playing playing extremely well, I think that becomes very dangerous for South Africa. Our our defensive structure is basically prefaced around trying to compress the space, be incredibly quick on the line speed, put put the decision makers under enormous amounts of pressure. But I think that if there are teams that are able to sort of go around South Africa and play wide and get the better of that defence, it is it is teams like Scotland. Um, I mean, we saw it a bit in the autumn with Ireland, actually. Um, I think Ireland unlocked South Africa's defence out wide a few times. And I think Scotland are another team that have the ability to do that, um, particularly because they've got sort of playmakers, you know, 9, 10, 12, 15. So, you know, they, they've got guys who, who can do that. Um so that's that's one element that worries me. I think that I think you know the power game that someone like Tupelotu brings, for example. I think that we've got that element of the game covered pretty well because we've got very physical guys in the ten twelve channel. And so I'm less I'm less concerned, truthfully speaking, about that. And it's the same reason that I'm less concerned about someone like Bundayaki from Ireland. I, I think that the the power game that guys like that bring, I don't think is as effective against South Africa. What worries me more is. Yeah, is, is playmakers being able to get around that rush defense, um, particularly because, you, you know, it, because it's such a high risk, high reward defense, guys who are new to the system, who, who don't get it, they, you know, they can make incorrect reads and get really badly punished for it. So if you have an injury to say someone like Chesan Colby, which has, you know, been known to happen, unfortunately, and happened in the previous World Cup, actually, um, you know, if you, 
if you then have a new guy in the system like a Kane and Moody, I mean, it's only one split second that you make an incorrect read and you're just not used to the system. And that's, you know, five points, potentially seven, and, you know, that can decide a game. So I think that's the element of, of Scotland's play, probably tempo. Um, and that comes from Ben White as well. I think that, like, the tempo in, and their playmakers in the back line is what... Um, what concerns me. And I think the counter to that is obviously the classic one. Whenever you whenever you are faced with that as a South African, is you just have to basically put them under an immense amount of pressure on the forwards, make sure they don't get any clean ball, try and be as suffocating as possible, keep the game on your terms, kick well, all, all the all the classics that we see. But yeah, that, that would be my my concern I get about playing Scotland. Yeah. And if if there was one Scotland player that you could pick and since we do, do it to South Africa all the time, you could pick in, uh, <laughs> in the South African squad. Uh, who, who would it be? I, I suppose you might just take one of the South Africans back, but <laughs> who'd you pick for for, uh, for South Africa from the Scotland squad and, and stick in a South African shirt? It's an interesting one because I think under, like, I, I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to have a guy like um, like Finn, Finn Russell in the in the South African setup. Um, I just don't know whether he'd fit within the Erasmus style of play. And so I think it'd, he'd almost be wasted. But then I looked at a guy like um, like Hugh Jones, I think is 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 pretty exceptional. And, you know, he's sort of an honorary South. He spent a lot of time in South Africa, was at uni there, and, um, you know, has a lot of friends in Cape Town. So, so someone like him, I think, is exceptional as well. Um, I think that he has just come on and leaps and bounds in his ability to play sort of 12, 13, 15. Um, yeah, I think he's a pretty exceptional player. And I think that if there was a guy that I, that I could poach for South Africa from Scotland, yeah, I'd probably say, probably say Hugh Jones. Yeah. Well, I, I would, I would, to be honest, if it was a South African, I, I could, I could pinch. I, I would probably pick just on the basis that I, I love amazing back fees. I'd pick my pimpy and pair him with Darcy Graham as the two wingers because um, I've, I've, I hope that I keep saying this, and I hope the Babas hear me sometime. That's the back, <laughs> and um, and uh, in terms of in terms of Ireland, I mean, obviously there uh, we're going to have uh, Jay on at some point to talk about about Ireland and and what the, a similar sort of vein. What is it? What is it you fear most about Ireland as a, as a South African fan? Just how clinical they are. They are a team which is, I believe, and this means no disrespect to the to the, to their individual players who are fantastic, but they are a team that's more than some of their parts. I think that Ireland's strength is just how unbelievably clinical and how well coached they are, um, and how they just seem to find ways to win. It's probably why we, as you know, as fans, just find it so frustrating. You know, you 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 find losing to like a Leinster B team really frustrating, and you're just like, how do these guys keep doing it? How do Ireland keep doing it? They just sort of have this unbelievable procession of people that they slot in and everyone knows their role intimately and and they just perform um and so from from a south african perspective it's annoying sometimes because perhaps arrogantly i look at i look at the lineups the one to 50 i'm like yeah i think i think we've got them there i think we've got an edge there got an edge there but just collectively just how well they're coached and how well they're drilled it's really tricky um i think one area where it's going to be interesting south africa versus ireland is is just the kicking game because i think that you know keenan is an unbelievable fullback and they've got some pretty pretty handy wingers as well so they they that's one area they're really willing to take us on and that's obviously been a traditional strength for us um but we're finding even in the even in the scrums, even in the in the malls and in the lineups, which traditionally has been our sort of domain um they they've really come for us and sort of bested us at times i think that how I mean, it's the ongoing one about Andrew Porter and how that man keeps keeps uh, keeps winning penalties, but with his scrum technique. But um, yeah. but he does, and he gets the job done. And Ireland keep winning penalties, and they and they they keep being successful. So I think that yeah, I mean, they are the best team in the world. They are probably World Cup favourites along with France and and you know New Zealand, and South Africa. Um, you know those four teams, but probably Ireland is has the has the best claim to being favourites. I'd say. Um, but then you know, there's always, there's always, they've got their own, their own issues. You know, how, you, you do question how, how convincing the depth is at, at, at ten, and particularly given the circumstances that, that currently surround Sexton. Um, so there's, there's always that element. You know, teams will always look to target, target that that part of their game and, and put pressure on there. Um, I think it's, I think it's going to be an almighty, you know, almighty tussle. I think that Ireland versus New Zealand, if it does happen, would be a very, very interesting fixture. Um, because I yeah I think that New Zealand 
yeah, I, I don't know. I think that would just be a really, really fantastic game of rugby. Uh, I'm just very happy to see other other teams that uh, are really, really good um, fight each other in the knockouts. I just like to to try and avoid that if possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the prospect of getting out of the group that Scotland and, and South Africa and Ireland find themselves in is, uh, I think it's probably France or New Zealand. So it's not exactly the greatest, uh, the greatest yeah. prospects once you get to that stage. Um. One last thing, and just about South African rugby, I tend to find that, that um, obviously during the Lions tour, it seemed like at times that South Africans maybe felt that it was the world against them and, and all that stuff. Is that like a mentality you think that leads to them winning things? Because they seem, obviously, no matter how frustrated you get with South Africa, how much you think they're down and out, they're always in it. Um, and is that a kind of mentality that South African fans tend to have, that they're just... It's us against the world when we play rugby. And I'm not saying that South African fans aren't friendly. I went to the Sevens World Cup in San Francisco and had a blast with loads of South Africans around me. But just is, is that the kind of mentality that fans have when it comes to the game? Yeah, the psychology and almost pathology of, of South African rugby is a really interesting, really interesting one. It's a very good question, actually, because I've been thinking about this a lot. I sort of struggle sometimes to understand why. So Africa really struggle when they are favourites in games. We seem to need to be underdogs. We seem to need to have this idea of the world against us in order to perform, which I find like immensely frustrating as a South African fan. Like uh, the example I use is, um, you know, in the last rugby championship, we played probably our best game all year. It was our first game against New Zealand in Nelspreet and Bombella. And we, we basically played them off the park and played a phenomenal game of rugby and won that. And the next week it was, you know, this is fantastic. Let's go out and win the second game in, in a row. It was in Ellis Park, also in South Africa. You know, to really, you know, once, you know, one, one swallow does not a summer make. But if we beat the All Blacks twice consecutively, that will really announce ourselves. And then we went and lost that game very narrowly after basically bottling a bottling a lead at the at the very end. And I sort of thought to myself, it's really frustrating that we can never like we can never seem to succeed when we're when we're seen as favorites for when we have the belief that we might be expected to win a game. We, we tend to choke it or bottle it somehow. And so I think that that plays into this really odd sort of having to feel that we're always underdogs, having to feel like the world is against us. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, more valid than others. Sometimes we really are the underdogs. Sometimes we are written off and have come out swinging as a result of it. But I think it's that, that twin element of pride. Some Africans are, you know, rugby fans are man, immensely prideful people and, and I think it's sort of that combined with this sort of need to have this undog element to to really kick us into gear that sometimes I think spills over into this sort of siege mentality. Having said that, I think sometimes it can be overstated. I think that um, I think that South Africa not the not the first, even if they are the most vociferous, to sort of feel like they've been they've been cheated or screwed or you know this that the other. I think that it's common amongst all fan bases at one time or another, even if it perhaps is the most common amongst South African fans, which I'll freely admit. Um but yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one. I think for me it's it's now to the point where it's just a bit tiresome and I do I do hope that we finally turn the corner. I suspect that the I, I, I do get the impression that we have hopefully, if not as fans at least as within the actual rugby administration and I do look at the coaches and not a veiled thing, I mean Erasmus. I do hope that the the penny is sort of dropped as it were. Um and I think that some of the noises I've seen coming from the camp have have indicated that I think that it's sort of yeah, I think that hopefully there's there's now gonna be a bit more sensible cool heads prevailing yeah. I've got just a couple more questions that are a little bit more general in, in terms of South Africa when it comes to international rugby they play the rugby championship obviously with New Zealand Australia Argentina Southern Hemisphere teams and then they play in the URC um, and then looking at the squad there's players that play in Japan and France and England across across the squad do you think that gives South Africa a massive advantage I mean the most so Scotland maybe have players in England and France, but South Africa seem to have players from all around the world coming to get it. Do you think that gives an advantage to them that they understand the styles of other teams better because of because of that diversity? Yes and no. I mean, the first the first point I'll say is that it's not you know it's not an optimal situation having fifty percent of your squad or fifty percent of your your starting team playing outside of your country. It's not really very good for your domestic rugby, to be truthful. To ha to have you know in excess of four hundred and fifty professional players playing outside of South Africa and guys who are really really good at rugby, 
Um, you, not only do you have guys who then obviously choose to further their international careers abroad instead of in South Africa. I mean, that's pretty commonplace now. And most international teams have some South African somewhere in the squad or have had. Um, so that's, that's one element of it. But really, it does sort of threaten to hollow out your, your, your domestic game. So, you know, it's actually been fairly remarkable from my mind how how competitive South Africa's local teams have been in the URC, truth be told, because I sort of look at the amount of talent that is overseas and I sort of think, well, if these guys are applying their trade in South Africa, not only does it add enormous amount of depth and talent to your existing squads, it also means that players coming through are exposed to, you know, to those types of guys in that type of environment, which, you know, makes them rounded and, and more, you know, skillful players in the long run. So, the negative element of it is ultimately having that many players abroad does does negatively impact your domestic rugby setup, but it can't not. And ultimately, that domestic rugby setup is what feeds through to the national team. So there's no way that it doesn't have a negative impact in that. And I, I think anybody who tries to downplay that isn't, isn't really being truthful. But then there is also the positive element on it. And that's all the things that you mentioned is that you get exposure to different styles of play, different teams, you get insights. And I think Truthfully speaking, a lot of the South African, you know, international team at the moment have gone, have left South Africa and become better rugby players. A guy like Cheson Colby, everyone likes to say, you know, how is this guy not picked for South Africa? Stormers fans particularly love to say, how is this guy not picked for South Africa? He's, you know, obviously such an amazing player. But the, the, the Cheson Colby that left South Africa is not the Cheson Colby that was selected for the Springboks for the first time. He, he was a very, very different player and wasn't wasn't meriting Springbok call-up when he was in South Africa. It's just as simple as that. It's the same thing with guys like you see, you know, champions like Raymond Rule. I mean, he was a, he was a Springbok at the time, but, you know, he was pretty, pretty widely derided. He's gone and taken his game to the next level in France. Dylan Lake, same, same story. So, you get these guys who obviously go overseas, experience different cultures, experience new coaches and, and become much, much better, more rounded players as a result. And that is obviously to South Africa's benefit at the top, top level. So at the Springbok level, it, it is beneficial having teams all over, sorry, having players all over the world. Um, but yeah, there's the question about what that means for the pipeline, what that means for your domestic setup, what that means in 10 years and, and, and looking long-term, which is a bit more intangible. So that's why I say I think there's there's positives and negatives to it. Um, but yeah, at, at the very highest level, at only looking only at Springbok rugby in the short term, it is I'd say it's a definite benefit. Very very in depth answer, and and yeah, I can see the negative too. If if you don't have a domestic setup, where do the kids go to start off their career? Whether they go to France later or whatever. So that yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. Last one you mentioned, obviously Khaleesi's uh, currently injured, as I, as I understand it. Who's the captain in his absence? Interesting one. I think we'll find out uh, on Tuesday when they when they eventually name it. It'll either be Dwayne Vermeulen or Lukaniwam, I suspect, um, given that Andre Pollard is is also injured at the moment and he's the vice captain and so would, I believe, naturally have stepped into being the captain. Both those guys are, you know, very experienced, big leaders. Lukaniwam is captain of the Sharks and so, you know, leadership is nothing nothing new to him. Um yeah, it'll it'll either be Dwayne Vermeulen or Lucanio. Um, who's who's better? I don't know. Maybe they go with a sort of co-captain structure. I mean, th- this is this is sort of how South Africa's always operated, even if even if it's never been in name. But when Khaleesi was first made captain, you know, he was made captain, understanding that there were elements of his leadership that he needed assistance with. He was never the type of guy. He's never like a Richie McCaw who could sort of take the team on his own back and and handle all elements of the leadership. Or someone like potentially, you know, Owen Farrell, who's a bit like that as well. He's always had a team of leaders around him. And it was to Erasmus and Khaleesi's credit that they recognized that that's what needed to happen. He, you know, Khaleesi came in, Dwayne from Mielin was always involved. Senior members of the team, Andre Pollard was always involved in all the decision-making. A lot of the communication with referees initially was done actually by Dwayne from Mielin. And then later, as Khaleesi grew in confidence and became a better communicator, he took over that role. So... Again, we might see something similar where, you know, one person, whether it be Dwayne or, or, or Lucanio, is, is named as captain, but there's always a core leadership group which will involve, you know, the, the very experienced senior players who will collectively make decisions, collectively do communication, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, cool. And then one last question, perhaps the most difficult one to answer. Uh, call it now. Who, who's who, who's uh, winning the World Cup and where, where does South Africa finish? It might be the same answer, but... Same uh, answer. South Africa's winning, 100%. Uh, no, um, 
I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I got a, I got a back, our, I got a back, our boys. Really, I, what, what kind of South African would I be if I simply weren't going to win? Um, but yeah, no, I think, look, it's, it's any of, it's any of the, any of the top sort of six teams. There's about six, six teams that could realistically win this, um, depending on you know the bounce of the ball in one game, or you know just getting a good route to the final, or getting on a bit of a roll. You know, you can't, you can't discount anybody. You know, obviously the, the sort of four that everyone mentions, but then Scotland, um, England, Argentina, Australia, all of them are signed with a shot. I think it's probably the most open World Cup we've seen in, you know, probably as long as I've been alive. Um, and I think that's it's a tantalizing prospect for fans that you can go in and genuinely not have any idea who like the real, real favorite is. And I think that's a very exciting position to be. But yeah, I think I've got to hope that South Africa, um, South Africa have enough of a dogged spirit to 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 take it through. It won't be easy. I think, unfortunately for for us three, for Ireland, uh, South Africa, and uh, and Scotland, we've got probably the hardest route to any potential glory. But you know, wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah, no, you've got to beat them if you're going to win it, right? So, um, one last bonus question: Are you looking forward to Wales playing in the qualifiers for the 2027 World Cup? <laughs> I just felt I had to. I had to give them some kind of dick. Uh, just to yeah, see. you had to. Yeah, where there's no one to, for them to answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I. Uh, it's it's a it's a tricky one. You you do you do got a feel for for Wales. I mean, it's a it's a it's a mess of their own making in many ways. Um. So, and I think that you know they they recognise that. But you know, Wales are such passionate rugby fans, and in many ways, it's actually the fan base I think that most closely. Um, mirrors South Africans and you know whenever I'm in Wales it's it's amazing chatting to those guys they're so passionate they're so intense and I think it's the same type of thing where that passion often spills over into into you know madness um, which is a classic South African trait as well but um but yeah I really hope for them for their sake they can come good but um but we'll see brilliant brilliant um, and is there anyone you want to give a shout out to um, on the on the podcast, then we can kind of cajole them into listening. It helps the helps the the numbers. Okay, brilliant. Uh, no, um, yeah, who who to give that shout out to? That's not a good question. Sorry, I should have had this ready to go. I mean, you're going to have Jay on next, so um, yeah, that obviously he's a, he's a good he's a good guy. But um, but yeah, I think probably just the the guys at the uh, at rugby at rugby bits. If um if you guys don't you know if, if any listeners of us don't follow them, they're really good. Tala and and Jared and and, and everyone there. So. Yeah, follow the guys at Rugby Bits. They're, they're really good podcasts as well and give a good South African perspective. So shout out to them. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time this morning. Cheers. Thanks so much.